Hello and welcome to episode 66 of the Page One podcast. I'm Tarek. I'm Marco and thanks for joining us for another episode of the Page One podcast. If this is your first episode, uh, please do go and check out our back catalogue at the Page One podcast. We do like to speak to writers of all kinds, uh, authors, screenwriters, journalists, video game writers, comedy writers, comedians. Um, have I missed any out? I think I think that's probably yeah. all of them. Uh, but there's a lot of lot of great guests we've had on the podcast in the past, so please do check that out. Um, yeah, we try and speak to them about how they broke into the industry, uh, what their process is, and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. And we've got someone this week who uh, goes across a few of those categories. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, definitely takes a lot of, a lot of the boxes that you just mentioned. It is Annalee Newitz we're chatting with this evening. This evening? I don't know why I said that. It's not even late right now at the time of recording. <laughs> um, but anyway, Annalee Newitz is an American journalist, editor, author, fiction and non-fiction. And mm. they've written for a number of periodicals, Popular Science and Wired, but perhaps best known for their work on io9, which is a, as we mentioned last week, a kind of science fiction and science fact blog. Which yeah. Was quite, well, it's really big. It's still big now, but it was... It was big when we were both. Yeah, well, was it, 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 it was. It, yeah, and Annalee was the founding editor of uh, um, IO9, and they talked to us about how that came about and, and how that opportunity presented itself. And yeah, it's it's a sort of blog that if you're into, you know, it, it came at the right time for the zeitgeist of yes. uh, people interested in popular science and also pop culture, like superheroes, uh, comics, video games. It covers all of these sorts yeah. of things. It was a really kind of go-to website when I was at uni because you you could get your your update on the Marvel movie stuff and then some movie spoiler special stuff and then some black hole information. And it was all a yeah, really good right. mix of just everything that I kind of was into. Actually, as as a writer, if you if you you know if you're into sort of if you're sort of science fiction futurist type stories that you want to tell, it's a great source of of ideas because it does cover that sort of popular science area of stuff as well as. Uh, yeah. the, the the pop culture stuff as well, but we talked to Anneli about that and how they choose between whether an idea should be for fiction or non-fiction, and also how you can sometimes explore important ideas in fiction in a way that will get to a larger audience than sometimes we'd look at the same idea in in a non-fiction piece. Yeah, is that kind of classic Star Trek, you know, um, idea of here's a really complicated analogy about AIDS but we're going to use aliens and as a moral drama and you can address it up and mm-hmm. you kind of almost slip it in the back door a little bit of these yeah you reach people that it might not reach otherwise exactly, in, in exactly. that way but yeah it's a really interesting chat so um, we'll just play a quick advert for our writer's notebook and then get straight into the podcast and we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest uh, who is also linked to io9 as well <laughs> But for now, on with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. 
But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Looking at your career, you seem to have had a sort of dual interest in science and writing. And I just wondered, to begin with, you know, growing up with those interests, what is it that pushed you more towards the writing side while always keeping the interest in science as well? Yeah, I actually wonder about that a lot myself. And I was realizing the other day when I was talking to a friend that um, in my novels, I have a lot of characters who are scientists that get kind of sucked into social science things Mm -hmm. and humanities things. And I'm in the middle of writing a novel right now where there's a character who's a scientist and these other characters come along and are like, actually, we need to talk about government. And she gets sucked into this whole government thing. I was like, this is, I think I'm trying to work out something here. (laughs) Um, Because I was um, like, like a lot of nerdy kids, you know, I was super into science when I was growing up. I really loved geology and I liked ancient history and um, I was just always really fascinated by it. But both my parents were English teachers and I think they kind of thought science was silly. And although they would certainly buy me science books and and encourage me, what they really encouraged me in was writing and reading um, fiction. And um, we had a huge bookshelf in our house that was like a two-story bookshelf that my dad had built and installed and it was pretty much all fiction um so I think it was it was definitely partly encouragement at home um and also the fact that uh you know there is a huge overlap between science and culture and so it was kind of easy for me to slide Mm -hmm. uh from from one to the other but I do um, I have to admit, I do have a lot of regrets about not having done as much science education when I was younger um, that I would have liked to. And so I've had to spend a lot of time kind of making up for that. Um, so uh, I did do the most technical possible thing I could do with an interest in the humanities, which is I got a PhD um, in English and American studies, which is just a fancy way of saying kind of literature and using some ideas borrowed from the social sciences. Um, and, 
And so my, my path took me in this very technical direction, but because I was always interested in science and especially in technology, um, I was always, <clears throat> I always had like sort of one foot in the world of journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, of course, once I was about to graduate with my PhD, it became really obvious that um, a career in academia was going to be extremely hard to find. Um, and it, I mean, in the United States, there just weren't that many jobs. And, um, and it turned out that it was actually easier to make a living as a journalist than it was to make a living as a professor. Um, so it was sad because I actually love teaching, but, um, at the same time, I also love, uh, writing even mm-hmm. more. So, um, so that was kind of how it happened. I mean, partly it was accidental and partly it was, um, the economy and partly it was that, uh, you know, um, you know, writing is really awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and absolutely. so it was, I was very, I, I always was, was doing writing. Um, so it seemed natural. And how did you make those first steps into journalism then? Um, so it was the 1990s. Um, so I started a zine. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, it sounds like a huge cliche, but um, at the time, Uh, My friends and I, when I was in grad school, we didn't actually know what zines were. We just uh, wanted to write articles about culture and science that weren't academic because, you know, academic writing can be very dense and um, it's really usually aimed at a super niche audience. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to reach a slightly bigger niche. (laughs) So so we created a, a zine called Bad Subjects, which actually is still going somewhere out there. Um, and, uh, it quickly, again, this was the nineties, so things were very crude and primitive, but we did put it online very, very early on <clears throat> before mm-hmm. the, before people really were going on the web, we put it on a thing called gopher, um, which people who are old will know about. Um, and, uh, and so that was what I did for many years. Um, and it was basically kind of culture journalism and I was writing some about actually the topics I write about now. But no one was paying me. I was just doing it because I didn't know how to get published anywhere else. I just was thought, okay, well, I'll just go ahead and do it on my own. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a the sort of stuff you you that I've read that you've written in terms of journalism is something that I wasn't aware of until I started going more into the internet. You know, it, it, it kind of suited to being on the internet because of of its subject matter in, in a lot of ways. And you wouldn't generally in the past have found that in, you know, broadsheet newspapers or something, at least not, not a lot of it. No, I mean, and I, I think I'm unusual that I, I sort of started as a digital, excuse me, I started as a digital journalist at a time when very few people were doing that. Um, And it would have been the more typical path for someone like me would have been to go work at a newspaper or a magazine. Um, But I think in a way I got lucky because my academic background meant that it was a pretty long transition for me into mainstream writing. I had to first pull all the academic language out of Mm -hmm. my my work and kind of just grow up a little bit. Um, And, and so by the time I was leaving school and applying for professional jobs, um, you know, it was the turn of the millennium and um, there was a pretty robust, if unstable um, internet 
uh, journalism world, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, I mean, people would sort of talk about it as like digital journalism. Is it real? Can we trust it? <laughs> um, and and I just kind of never looked back. I've always I've, I have always published uh, in newspapers and magazines, but my primary venue has been the Internet. And and it's perfect because the subjects I'm interested in appeal to people who were early adopters of the Internet, technology mm-hmm. and science. Um, and science fiction. Um, but also, I just I love the immediacy of digital journalism. Um, I love getting responses from readers, which um, a lot of my peers found really alienating and creepy. And I was like, why wouldn't you want to do that? Um, so so yeah, it's it's definitely I've, I've always been very online, um, which made me feel like I was from the future for a very long time. And now I think I finally caught up or history is caught up to me or something. Yeah. So I think I'm finally in sort of the right timeline. <laughs> and when you look at the the path that you took um, to to get, and we're, we're going to get to I- IO9, et cetera, but, but, the, but the path that you took when you were first uh, starting, is that a similar path that you would recommend to people starting out in the area now, you know, writing stuff, not for money, but just for exposure to try and get, some experience before you can then try and pitch stuff or what's the, what's the path now? I think there's a a lot of paths um, and there were then two. And I was extremely lucky that I was in school and had, um, you know, support from the university to live on. So Mm. I didn't need to have, I mean, I had a day job, but it was being in school, which is really different from having a day job, like working at a bank or something Mm. like that. Um, So you know, it was fine for me to spend some of my time uh, doing writing. Um, But I think for other people, um, you know, writing for free just isn't an option. So I would say that, sure, if you have the luxury to do that, um, it is a great way to start writing. Um, You know, and and certainly I think that that is now a pretty established path in fiction, uh, so many people start out doing fanfic now, um, and the fanfic community is so, um, you know, sophisticated. Like, it's it's big, it's complicated. People have excellent uh, critical feedback. Like, I, my niece is really into fanfic, and she's part of a group of people who, you know, really give each other um, great critiques on their work. So I think that's one way, like, doing joining, like, a fanfic-type community, which... Um, is writing for free, but it's also participating in a community. So to me, it doesn't quite feel as exploitive. Mm-hmm. But doing what I did where I created my own publication and wrote in it, um, I guess now it would be equivalent to doing like a medium blog or mm-hmm. um, or just, you know, rolling your own blog from scratch, however, whatever software you want to use. Um, I think that can be a good exercise. But I also think that um, especially especially if you want to make a living as a writer, it's good to try to start getting paid as soon as you can and to not be afraid to ask for money because um, it's a job, you know, and and people should be paid for it. And ideally, um, you know, you do some practice writing, um, you know, as we all practice things for free at first, um, but that really the goal is find publications that you want to write for that will pay for it. Um, and you know, sometimes that means, I mean, certainly when I was starting out, I did commercial writing, I did marketing writing. Um, I would basically do any, any kind of writing if you would pay me. Hmm. Um, and, um, I never got to do porn, which I wanted to, (laughs) (laughs) um, but I would, and, um, you know, that still might be in the cards, but the point is that, 
um, you know, any kind, any kind of paying work is good work um, mm -hmm. when it comes to writing. And the more credits that you get, um, the better you get, not just at writing, but at um, navigating the world of getting paid for writing, which is its own dark art for mm -hmm. sure. And uh, that pathway took you uh, at one point to become sort of founder and editor-in-chief of io9 uh, which for those who are listening might not know it it's um a big uh it's it was part of the gawker or is it still part of the gawker I, I, i'm not it's sure it's not well it, it gawker the it's the network formerly known as gawker yes. now uh -huh. it's called yeah, yeah. go media right okay <laughs> but yeah it's still part of the network that it yeah. started with um i mean how how did that come about um, that was a, that was also a very kind of random story. Um, I had been writing for Wired magazine and I was a contributing editor there and I had written for a lot of other, um, kind of nerdy places like popular science. And, um, I had a, a column about technology that ran in a lot of free weeklies in the U S. Um, and so I had kind of a small reputation and I got contacted kind of, to me, it felt like out of the blue um by the then managing editor um of gawker media who said oh we're thinking of doing some things why don't why don't we meet <laughs> um and uh, i really i mean you know gawker had a, a pretty crazy reputation um the whole time that that i worked mm -hmm. there and so i kind of thought i i just took the meeting as a lark like i figured they were going to ask me to do something terrible that i wouldn't like but i'd have a good story to tell and so um I, <laughs> I actually, I was meeting up with this um, managing editor, like at a pub, and I had like smoked a joint at some point during the day. So I kind of showed up not in a very businessy mood at all. And I was just like, ah, this is gonna be dumb. And then um, it wasn't, he actually was um, quite compelling. And he said, you know, we're starting some kind of um, futurism site. And would you be interested in that? And I was like, what? And my, it was like, <laughs> it really felt like somebody had like yanked all the clouds out of my brain in that moment. And I was like, yes, this is totally interesting. Um, and so uh, that was, and so we started kind of working, I started working with them um, internally with uh, Nick Denton, who ran the company at the time and um, several of the editors uh, on what, the nature of this blog would be uh and i from the beginning they were they were interested in futurism and science fiction and from the very beginning i said we have to cover science it has to be at least uh 50 science and fact and then 50 pop culture because that's just gonna get you uh such a great combination mm -hmm. of ideas mm -hmm. um and nick was a bit dubious, um, but then I won out <laughs> and uh, and he was glad because it turned out that actually um, the science coverage was really what pulled in our audience. Mm -hmm. um, and it was kind of like people came for the science and stayed for the pop culture. And sometimes it was the other way around. Like sometimes people would get sucked in because it was like, oh, Judge Dredd. Oh, here's a story about, you know, quantum physics. Mm -hmm. um, and because, uh, you know, the big overlap between like Judge Dredd and Quantum. <laughs> Apparently, so the Venn diagram is like um, that, that, amazing. That mix was really, I really liked that mix. Because that, you're totally right in that you would, uh, there must be a crossover though between people who are into science fiction and actual science. There must be a lot of, lot of you know, if you are interested in both, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> absolutely. And that was something that, um, 
you know, in feedback from in, in those early days, which is now, gosh, like 12 years ago now, um, that was the thing that people really liked. And I think it was part of what um, made io9 really unique was mm -hmm. that we were really and we weren't just committed to <clears throat> we weren't just committed to science writing that was kind of like gee whiz daily mirror stuff you know it wasn't like hey we found a mummy's hand yeah. <laughs> um it was we were you know trying to write legitimate science journalism and break stories and talk to researchers um <clears throat> and be uh as accurate as we could be and that's to me what's really fun because we had people you know, um, writers and, and filmmakers and TV show um, writers who would come and you knew they were coming because they wanted to read whatever we were saying about the stuff they were working on. But then they would stick around and get ideas uh, yeah. from the science articles for new ways to take their um, their writing. And so it was always cool when people would say, like, yeah, I, I learned about this crazy nano stuff that that now I'm sticking in my story. And I'm like, yes. My work here is done. <laughs> <laughs> and so on a day-to-day -day basis, I mean, when you were sort of editor-in-chief, uh, but mm -hmm. you were also writing articles for it as well, I mean, uh, how do you juggle all of that together and sort of curate everything together? It was hard. Um, <laughs> so uh, it was, um, you know, it really was a job that lasted from, first thing in the morning to almost like 11 or 12 at night every night, because the way we ran io9. And, and when I say we, Charlie Jane Anders was also co basically co running it. Um, she's also a, a terrific science fiction writer and fantasy writer. Um, she and I would just um, try to schedule posts to come about every I mean, the longer we went on, it was like about every half hour. But initially, I think it was like every hour or so. Mm. Um, and we had a staff um, of, you know, anywhere from depending on the era of io9, anywhere from like three to nine people um, and plus freelancers. And so we were both editing and writing. We were trying we were both trying to write at least like five to eight posts a day, some of which were quite long and some of which were really silly. Like, here's a picture of a thing. Um, so, which actually sometimes the picture of a thing posts would be the ones that got the most traffic, which would always be kind of, I don't know, you feel sad about it, but it's also fine. Um, and so it was very exhausting. Like it was physically exhausting mm -hmm. as a job. Um, and I'm sure that that's what it's like for people who work on like, you know, daily sh TV shows and stuff like that, where it's just like, there's a million things that you're juggling. Um, and it was... Yeah, I mean, we sustained it for many, many years, but at a certain point, um, I did have to kind of dial it back a little bit and kind of focus a bit more on the editing side. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of when I got less interested in the project overall. I'm just, I, I like, um, I like building publications. I like creating places where I can be a writer and, and then I just want to be a writer there. And so um, that was that was part of what precipitated my urge to kind of leave and just do pure writing um, because the the meetings and the management and all that stuff just um, it's just not it's not how my brain works. I don't really want to, you know, uh, <laughs> I want to I want to write things. So well, well, that whole time you were, am I right in saying you have, could you put out a number of short stories? And so the. Am I right in saying that 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 whole time you were kind of wanting to shift into the 
short story and then eventually your actual your your first novel in 2017 um and and was it a, was it a kind of gradual process of leaving io9 and and or, or that world and moving more into short story and kind of fiction writing um it was i wouldn't let's see it i was always working on book projects um while i was at io9 i um wrote a nonfiction book um, called Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, which is about mass extinction. It's a science, pop science book. Um, and I also wrote Autonomous while I was there, which was my first novel. Um, and I I always wanted to write books. I, I guess I wouldn't say it was gradual. It didn't feel gradual, but I, I guess it was gradual. <laughs> um, there were a couple moments when I just took time off to work on book projects. And when I say I took time off, it was more like, um, well, for example, there was a financial crisis where um, I just had to go down to halftime. So when I went down to halftime, I was like, I'll spend the other half of my time writing a novel. Mm -hmm. Um, So Autonomous came out of the, the, at least the first draft of Autonomous came out of the financial crisis. Um, And then, uh, yeah, so I, I guess, I guess my, I'm having to retcon this. Like, what did I really do? I feel like I was, I was doing a lot of flailing. And so, but to make it sound like I knew what I was doing, um, I did really always want to write books. And I've, I've been trying to do that for pretty much my whole career. I've always been pitching books. Um, and pretty much unsuccessfully, um, I did publish a couple of academic books back when I was a, when I was a professor, but, um, I, didn't really get anyone interested in publishing a book from me until I was running io9 so <laughs> so that that let's just say that it was all part of a plan <laughs> and it Excellent. came together well, well planned that's fantastic yes right <laughs> yeah kids don't do it that way <laughs> have a better plan and you have you have uh, written obviously you've written um the novels and you you you're still writing nonfiction. Your latest book, which we'll talk about, is is a nonfiction book. But I mean, what I wondered was when you come up with an idea that you're interested in, you're wanting to explore. What is it that makes you think this this will work as a novel, or this is something I want to explore in a sort of nonfiction way? It's a good question. Um, usually. Usually I, I, the way I usually start is, okay, I want to write a book. Um, what are some ideas I have that would be book length? So it won't be so much like I get seized by an idea that then demands to be a particular length. It does happen sometimes that way. Um, but I have to say, I think the only times I've been seized by an idea that came out of nowhere, it was almost always a short story for some reason. Right. Um, and then otherwise I, it is much more deliberate. I'm quite a, um, a boring writer in that way. Like I do a lot of very deliberate thinking about what ideas will fit into what amount of space. I do a lot of outlining, um, which I know a lot of writers think is really ridiculous. Um, and I, I, so I do a lot of, of thinking through what's going to make sense. Um, and, and so 
so the, I, I'm never caught by surprise like that I'm going to write a book. Um, although it is true that the nonfiction book I'm working on right now, which won't be out for at least a year and a half or so, um, I was a bit surprised that I wanted to write about it. I'm writing a, a history, a, a short history of psychological warfare in the United States. Um, and I had been writing about psychological warfare a lot in my nonfiction, um, it, you know, having to do with like social media and how people mm -hmm. are manipulating each other's political opinions. Um, and I was actually talking to a researcher who was like, wow, you know a lot about this. You should write a book. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 maybe, maybe so. But I have to say with all of my other books, it's definitely been like pretty deliberate, especially with my fiction and with my new nonfiction book, Four Lost Cities. That was a project that I worked on for many, many years. And it came out of it came out of articles I was writing. So right. usually the the nonfiction articles I'm writing kind of tell me what I'm obsessed with, because if I keep returning to the same topic over and over again, um, I know I'm <laughs> obsessed with it enough to write about it. But with fiction, it's like, I'm much more of a novel writer than a than a short story writer. So like if I have a really awesome fiction idea, it's pretty much always going to be a novel. And is your process when you're writing fiction compared to nonfiction, is it the same? You know, do you do the same kind of outlining or is it and the planning process or is it completely different in terms of if you're doing something that you know is real compared to something that's just coming out of your own head? That's a really good question. And actually, as you asked it, I realized why I probably am such an outliner because I most of my career has been nonfiction. And of course, mm -hmm. with nonfiction, I think it's much more typical to do outlining. Mm -hmm. um, and so with my nonfiction, I'm very much of an outliner. Again, even if I'm writing something short, I'll kind of jot some notes down about where I want to go. Mm -hmm. And I think that then when I turned to writing autonomous and had, I'd never written a novel before, um, it just my brain was like, well, of course, I'll produce an outline. Um, even though I, I, I often change my mind as I'm going through the outline. So um, so I think that the, I'm an outliner because I got all of my writing habits from nonfiction. Yeah. And with your, with your actual novels as well, one thing that, that struck me from uh, reading, I've read uh, Future of Another Timeline uh, quite recently, which I really enjoyed, but um, th there's your, your, it's clear your background in science is clear from from the book itself and you you know how how do you balance here's all this science information research that i've got with here's an actual story that will move forward at a reasonable pace and not bog it down and all that sort of stuff is that just experience from from your many years of writing um, probably a little bit. I mean, one of the things about science journalism is that you do have to make very complicated ideas accessible to people. Um, and it's the same thing actually with teaching. I think a lot of this goes back to the fact that I spent so many years teaching in university, um, and thinking about ways to present ideas that would be engaging for undergraduates, um, and engaging for me too, to be honest. Um, so I think, but there is that like balance in fiction. If you're someone like me who loves to talk about science, you have to balance out the info dumping mm. and the character <laughs> development. Um, and I, <clears throat> I definitely, it's funny that no one's ever accused me of being an info dumper because I really feel like I am. <laughs> 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 um, and I'm like the novel I'm working on right now, like, 
I'll have these long scenes where it's literally just me talking about ecosystems. And I'll be like, how do I make this exciting? Well, my characters are walking through an ecosystem <laughs> and they're looking at the ecosystem um, and they're heading to a really cool thing and they're having like tension, but it'll be like, like almost like the tension between the characters. Cause there's like, I'm, I'm writing these two characters who have like romantic tension. And so it's like, there's romantic tension between them, but it's all in the service of describe, describing like in a transitional ecosystem that's moving from like tropical to savanna. And like, I spent so many days researching what that would look like and like how it would feel to be walking on the squishy trail and stuff. <clears throat> and then I'm sure when people read it, they'll be like, ooh, it's just like romantic angst. And like, they won't realize that I'm actually telling them all about like um, tropical ecosystems. So, <laughs> or maybe they will, maybe they'll be like, why is there so much stuff in here about ficuses? Um, so, <laughs> but I definitely like, I am such a nerd about researching shit. Like, it really is true that I spent, like, hours researching tropical ecosystems to write a tiny scene of a tropical ecosystem. So um, I I think I balance it maybe just by luck. I mean, just by sheer flailing in a way that somehow works. Because um, it's, <laughs> it's definitely, <laughs> definitely not, not as deliberate as it should be, I'd say. <laughs> but, like, your book's... You know, writing about ecosystems or writing about, you know, the topics that you pick in your books are obviously stuff that you're interested in that are important to you. But do you think, um, you know, the, the, there's a there's a storyline in Future of Another Timeline. Part of the plot is about a group of men trying to wipe out the, the rights of, of uh, the LGBTQ community and stuff. Do you find that wrapping, putting that stuff in fiction is a better way to reach a broader audience, do you think? I definitely think it is, yeah. Um, I I think that when you have, um, I, I think political ideas, ideas about um, social relationships, um, I think it's easier to convey those ideas and also to receive those ideas like as a reader um if it's in the context of something that's imaginary because it's a lot less threatening mm -hmm. um and i definitely uh i mean i do write in my nonfiction about um climate change and and the environment but i think um people kind of just shut their eyes when they when they see an article about climate change it's like oh god not this again mm -hmm. um and and that's understandable i mean it's it's an upsetting topic and um it feels like there's nothing we can do about it um and so i think in fiction if you show characters um you know engaging with the world and there's something that you can hold on to that feels human but also feels imaginary uh it does allow us to have that kind of free play of, of belief systems where we kind of allow ourselves to entertain the idea that maybe other points of view are legitimate or even better uh, than whatever we've been taught previously. Um, so I definitely, like, I don't think I would ever write a nonfiction book that was all about, um, uh, I don't think I would ever write a, a nonfiction book that dealt with some of the topics in Future of Another Timeline. Um, even though they're very important to me, like violence against women or violence against young people. Um, I don't, 
I, I think that that's a story that exists in my head as as a story, not as a, mm-hmm. a set of facts. I mean, it is based on facts, but it's it's also um, I don't know. I just I want people to be able to think about those ideas in a way that doesn't that feels safe. I keep returning to the word safe because I think fiction creates a kind of safe environment where we we have pillows on the walls instead yeah. of stone. But but also I think it, at the same time it it can it can bring a topic it can make a topic more relevant to you as well I think. You know a, a, another article that you say about climate change is just another article that you've seen on the newspaper but if it's wrapped up in a story about characters that you care about and it affects them then obviously it'll make you start thinking about that topic as as well. I think that's true. I that's what I think is so interesting about fiction is that it makes things feel more personal and visceral and intimate, like more emotional, but at the same time more distant, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's we can engage with these topics um in ways that we just wouldn't if we were kind of in our more um uh skeptical or rational state of mind Mm -hmm. um so i think i think the thing i worry about in fiction and i don't know if other fiction writers worry about this but you know if i am dealing with a political topic um like say uh gender politics or um you know the politics of fascism or something like that both of which come up in future of another timeline I worry sometimes that readers will come away with the wrong message and which I guess is just something you always have to worry about as a writer or, and just like, let go of like, it's like, okay, not everyone's going to get what you're getting at. (laughs) Um, But I think that in fiction, it's easier for your ideas to become kind of appropriated for something that you never intended. Whereas in nonfiction, you can kind of say to the reader, no, I'm actually saying Mm -hmm. that this is bad. Like, here's a thing that I'm describing yeah. and it's bad. You can, you can like literally write this. Well, you, you wouldn't write the sentence. It's bad because that's a terrible sentence, but like you can sort of say it in some other way. Um, and in fiction, like if you, if I were to write something and then to kind of do the fictional equivalent of saying it's bad, like that's just terrible. Like no reader wants to hear that, you know? Um, and so you kind of have to just hope that they get mm-hmm. which characters are the good characters and which yeah. ones are the bad characters and that they don't end up saying like, wow, but like being Sauron would be awesome, yeah, right? Exactly. You know, like, because, but and so, you know, some people came yeah. away with that, yeah, you know, yeah. and they were just like, fuck yeah. Um, and, uh, and so that's, I think that's, that's kind of what I mean is that I, I feel like in fiction that you do run that risk that people will kind of wind up getting yeah, the I mean, uh, opposite message. We we spoke to um, Daniel Abram, who, who wrote the Expanse books, and he was saying exactly, exactly the same thing. But he also said that, you know, it's not something you've got any control over as a writer. You you write the story that you want to write and you put it out there and then what other people do with it, you might have a hope that they interpret it in some way, but it's it's out of your control. And there's you know, I think his view was that once it's out there, it's not it's not his problem in that in that sense. Yeah. And that's definitely how I feel. Like I would never try to control how a reader understands my books. And I have had people say some pretty wacky stuff to me about like oh, I loved when this this thing happened that in my mind was a terrible, upsetting thing and that they took as being a really positive thing. And, I was, and I'm just like, okay, like, mm. I'm glad that your mind is happy. Stay in that happy place. <laughs> <laughs> you sickle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, it was, it's weird. I mean, it, it is quite a strange experience to have people 
just have the opposite reaction. Yeah, no, it's, I've been watching. Um, it's called it. It's a sin. I don't know if it's out in America yet. It's a it's a five part show in the UK about kind of the rise of AIDS during the eighties, and it follows oh, yeah, some, yeah. it follows some folks, some kind of younger uh, folk over about five or six years or so. And it's a, it's it's a really interesting because it's kind of a topic I didn't I kind of felt I kind of knew about, but then when you actually do watch it as the it kind of goes through what people's views were and how it changed over time and 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 it, it kind of drove home what it was like at that point and it's definitely it's a i think doing it in the kind of guise of fiction is a really good entryway to a world where i probably wouldn't have watched a documentary about it necessarily but i would have watched a show about it and you, you kind of learn stuff and it makes you want to then go and read and watch more stuff about it and it really is a it's it, it, it's a great starting point i think having these big ideas in a wrapped up in the it's almost you're almost tricking you into learning stuff and, and getting it, involved in a topic you didn't think you'd necessarily want to know more about. But it's, it's, it's yeah, it's a, that's well definitely right. Stuff. Isn't that that's a Russell T. Dav- yeah. T. Davies? Yeah, that's show, right. right. It is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was gonna say because that's what I. I mean, Russell T. Davies is awesome, and he's always done that. Like he always mm-hmm. is. Like he always picks projects where he can have amazing characters and then like sneak actual real information in totally. and i mean yeah. that's what doctor who is all about like doctor who was originally supposed to be an educational kids show and and it was like uh, and also there's all these cool characters but like you're learning about history kids you yeah. know and there's some <laughs> science in here too um yeah. and there is some it's it's awesome no totally um and i actually i read in an interview you gave a while back with someone that you could have when you're writing your fiction you you often think about the consequences of technology and I guess kind of a similar Black Mirror kind of way of, you know, here's something which everyone loves. What's the end result if we run it down down the line? And and, and I wonder what your process is with that. You know, do you do you pick something that you find quite interesting and do you run it down to almost a ridiculous end and then try and pull it back? Or do you just go step by step and think where would this technology go in society would change over time? Um, kind of both. Um I, I try never to take things out to their most extreme, absurd ends because mm. I, I'm actually not a good absurdist writer. Um, I, I think that's just not my forte, but I am good at um, extrapolating unintended consequences that feel realistic. Yeah. Um, and so what I will often do, uh, actually what I've done in both of my novels that deal with the future uh, is I have written timelines out. Um, and of course, with Future of Another Timeline, it was a little different. I did have a timeline for that, too, but they weren't really going into the future um, at all. But um, the the novel I'm working on now, which is set about 52,000 years in the future, um, I did make a little timeline for myself of like when certain things were invented. Um, it's not super detailed. It's not like minute by minute. <laughs> um, but um, I did want to establish like in my mind sort of how how technology changed how governments changed like when it, it's sort of it's a it's about terraforming so i'm kind of thinking about how terraforming became um like a, a commercial uh industry basically mm-hmm. like how does it turn how does how do real estate and terraforming kind of merge mm-hmm. um and so i i yeah i thought about it pretty carefully like how would that work Um, and one of the things that really helps me, and and I've talked about this before is thinking about how much things have changed between the past and the present. So when I was thinking about 50,000 years, 
um, you know, I, I thought about, okay, well, what were people doing 50,000 years ago? Um, you know, we, we had all kinds of stuff. Like we had lots of tools. People were using boats to go all over the world. Like people had already, um, reached Australia in boats. Um, and they had a lot of tools. The, the thing that I kept thinking about is that um, humans had a really sophisticated tool set with stone tools, which when you hear like stone tools, it sounds like, ugh, that's just like hitting things with rocks. But yeah. people made incredibly sophisticated shit with stone tools for like tens of thousands of years and didn't really reach a point where they were using metals or ceramics for a long, long time, but were still very successful. They still had agriculture. They still had um, kind of proto cities. Um, so I was thinking, um, and I guess readers will have to decide if this actually makes sense, but I was thinking that like maybe once people get to space and are able to have the technology to kind of um, live on other planets comfortably, that maybe we would reach a kind of equilibrium the way we had during the the Paleolithic, um, where we spend a really long time with a basic tool set, a basic set of materials, but then we develop many, many tools out of it. So like that there's some kind of space equivalent of the Paleolithic or mm -hmm. of the Stone Age, where we're like, not developing like, invisibility and like, crazy levels of technology, but we're actually just, okay, we have a tool set for living on other planets and we're just refining that for like tens of thousands of years. And so, um, so they're not doing things like uh, turning into liquid terminators or like, um, you know, like uh, going into other dimensions or like subliming or like, um you know, build, they're not yet at the phase where they're like an Ian M. Banks type thing where they're mm. like, and we've built a galaxy wide computer. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, like, so it's not, uh, the, and, and I think, so that was how I kind of arrived at that idea was I was like, okay, it is the far future, but just because it's far in the future doesn't mean that people would be using technology that was totally unrecognizable to us. And, and that there's actually a historical precedent um, for why that might be true. So it feels plausible to me. Who knows? In 50,000 years, humans will, you know, look back and be like, ha actually, we've all become squid creatures that live in six dimensions. I don't know. <laughs> it's funny because I, I often do like to look at back at these, you know, we get it's like in the year 1970, here's what we think will happen in the next 60 years. And you read it and they're always terrible. They're often because they haven't been imagined like, enough you know they've they've said we think though we'll get even more space on a floppy disk or whatever and it's like so far beyond <laughs> not that. untrue yeah, well, true. It's, it's true. <laughs> but it's always funny how how hard it is to really gauge you know how far people will go or technology will go and and so yeah i think i i, I like the idea a lot of kind of imagining a a, a time where it's you're going to get to a level playing field almost and it's which which is obviously based in historical fact no, yeah that, that's that's a nice way of doing it. Uh, I, I, yeah i mean and again it could be totally wrong right it could be like no one knows it's, you could have a black swan thing mm -hmm. where it's like oh and then we discovered like in the expanse oh and then we discovered an alien technology and yeah, so yeah. all bets are off you know yeah. <laughs> um so yeah we you know, I just don't have the alien technology thing. I have the slow march of the Paleolithic in space. <laughs> I mean, I, I read something. I can't remember where I read it. But, you know, if you took a man, if you took someone from uh, 1900 and put him in 1950, 
uh, and then put someone from 1950 and 2000. You know, the, it seems that in that last 50, from 1900 to 1950, it wouldn't seem like a huge leap to that person. But if the the last 50 years, or I, I think whenever it was that I read it, but sure. you know, it, it's a, it's a it, it's a there you do get these periods where suddenly something mm-hmm. there has been this little jump, even though there's been a, the same amount of time has passed. I, I actually. I don't know if that's true. I think um, there's definitely periods of time in human history when we've had rapid technological development and also rapid um, like expansion of urban spaces and stuff like that. But I think every generation believes that our generation is like the weirdest yeah. and that we've made things like the most like I-, I was listening to a podcast where the two um, hosts were saying like, Oh, imagine going back 10 years and trying to explain to someone about hype houses and like TikTok memes and stuff like that. And I was like, you wouldn't have any trouble explaining that. Like it would take you what three sentences. Come on. Um, and I think, I, I do think that, that, um, some things are, are odd, but you know, they're, they're still taking the same shape over and over. Like, um, humans are still trying to, um, figure out instantaneous connection. You know, that's something we've been trying to figure out for a long time. Um, we're still trying to go into space. We're t- still trying to go faster than we can go on our feet. Um, you know, know we lot- do, we've got folding phones now. I mean, that's that's pretty <laughs> species. True. I know. <laughs> no one saw that coming. <laughs> you know, but it's like but the idea of the phone, like I feel like you could explain that to someone in the late 19th century. It's like, it's a telegraph in your hand, which you always <laughs> wanted. And like, everyone would be like, dude, that's so cool. We always wanted a telegraph in our hand. Um, and like, if you went back further than that, it would be like, it's like a letter, but it goes really fast. You know, <sighs> like texting is like, like Twitter would have made sense in the Neolithic. Like people would have been like, oh yeah, we exchange tiny pieces of information written down on stone. It's like, so you guys are doing it with this weird foldy thing, but we always wanted folding stones. So, you know, like, this is awesome. So I, I, I don't mean to, like, disparage human achievement. We have achieved a lot, but we also do keep returning to the same obsessions, um, the same areas of technological development. So, um, you know, food is another one of those areas, which is like a whole other thing, like how we keep developing new ways of of making food and growing food and distributing food and um, and we just, you know, we like to eat, <laughs> so we just keep working on that. Well, that that, that brings us uh, on to nicely onto your latest book, which is uh, Four Lost Cities. Um, do, do you want to tell us a bit about about that and why you wrote that? Yeah, so this is a nonfiction book um, that I spent many years uh, researching, and it's about uh, what new discoveries in archaeology can tell us about why people first built cities, but also why people abandoned cities. So the book focuses on four life histories of cities that were abandoned. So that way I can sort of tell the whole story of the city from its birth to its abandonment um, and talk about why it is that people keep doing this crazy thing. It brings together, again, going back to what we were saying earlier, but I mean, you know, it seems to me to be a book that you've, you know, your interest in geology and, and all of that sort of stuff seems to still be coming through in in the topic for this book as well yeah for sure i mean you'll you'll see i don't think anyone will be surprised that the person who wrote the science fiction novels i wrote wrote this book Mm -hmm. um there's a lot of um 
you know, there, I use a lot of storytelling skills in it. Um, and it's, of course, about it's about human history, but it's also about how archaeologists and geologists and you know chemists and a lot of other scientists, um, how they how they learn about history, like how we use evidence from science to kind of recreate stories about what our ancestors did. Um, and so, yeah, it is, it's totally my obsessions. It's, it's definitely the nonfiction equivalent of a portal fantasy um, or, or like a, just a time, just a basic time travel story mm-hmm. um, where we get to kind of go back and see these really different social worlds than, um, than our current one here in the West um, where I live. And so um, yeah, it's definitely, it, it scratches the itch of writing, um, you know, writing a novel, but uh, the fun part about it is that it's all real. It's all based in fact. Um, and I really went to all these places and talked to scientists and um, tried to bring their stories to life in a way that would feel like reading something fun and fictional. And it, it's quite, it's, Quite, quite interesting as well from the point of view of what we were speaking about earlier as well because you know people in their time and like in our time now we think this is the height of civilization this is what civilization is but if you look you, do, you look back in history and there have been civilizations that thought probably thought exactly the same thing and they they've been completely wiped out you know it it seems to be something that humans can't you can't ever not think you're living in the best the best time in the sense of being civilized and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, you know, I, I actually, I guess I would push back on that because I think there are definitely times when people have not felt like they were living at the height mm. of civilization. Um, there's definitely places on earth where people would tell you, uh, mm. yeah, everything is really screwed up here. And actually, no, <laughs> this is not the height <laughs> of anything. Um, and I mean, here in the States, we just lived through four years where a lot of us felt like, oh, this is not the country we signed up for. <laughs> um, and that was really shocking and weird and um, kind of a good reminder that um, civilization doesn't kind of proceed along a perfect path of mm-hmm. like some ideal always getting better, mm-hmm. always getting more just, always getting more foldy phones. Um, <laughs> and then I also think that uh, it's also, it, it's true what you said, that, that then there are these moments in history where, um, especially in places like cities, where so many people come together and create just incredible monuments and inventions that they could never do on their own and that they could never do in a village with just like one other person who knows how to make stuff right mm-hmm. if you have a hundred people who know how to make stuff get together your chances are you're going to make something amazing um and and that's that is part of what's fun is revisiting those moments when we all thought we were doing the greatest thing ever um and it turned out that you know people walked away from it and mm-hmm. they didn't actually in the end think it was the greatest um and that seems to be kind of how cities work. Um, I can't speak to civilizations because obviously civilizations are huge, broad movements that outlast cities. Um, And all of the cities in this book, uh, although they were abandoned by the people who lived there, the cultures and civilizations that kind of accumulated in those cities, those those continued on. So civilization did not fall. Mm -hmm. It was just that the city itself was abandoned because of pretty mundane reasons, usually like bad management, 
uh, unstable government, too many floods. Um, you know, in one case, a volcano did go off and bury the city in hot ash. So that was <laughs> a kind of no, no brainer for leaving that city behind. Um, but yeah, I think uh, this was my long rambling way of saying that not every culture cares about being the number one civilization. I think that's a Western thing. And I think it's specifically like a kind of um, a relic of like colonialism and industrialization and capitalism where we're all like, who's number one? Who has the most civilized civilization? And it's like, is that? that's just another artifact of our culture, right? We've invented this idea of civilization. We think it's super badass. And like, you know, in 50,000 years, people might have a really different set of ideas about what makes a good community. And it might not have anything to do with being number one. It might have to do with like, who has the tastiest acorn bread. (laughs) That sounds better probably. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And what's the, what's the process behind the scenes then with, with a non fiction book do you have to pitch that first is that like uh before you start writing it you know or is it uh whereas it's like a kind of kind of fiction book you can kind of write it and then try and shop it around type thing yes so that's a really good question um it is uh backwards in that way like in in this in with fiction usually you have to have written the whole thing and then you pitch it um and with nonfiction, even though you'd think it might be a good idea to have written the whole thing before you pitch it. You, you just pitch with a really detailed outline. Um, and, you know, the outline often includes like a big chunk of writing. Like you'll, you'll include sample chapters. So um, if you want, if you really want to sell the book for an amount of money you can live on, it does help to have written, you know, maybe a quarter of the book already. So it, it isn't exactly like you're not, you haven't written anything. Mm-hmm. Um and you do have to do quite a bit of research first. And and that's a bit unfair. But at the same time, it's, you know, you have to show that you can actually pull off the book. So uh, in my case, um, like I said, I had been researching this book for many years. And so I had actually traveled to a couple of the cities already and reported out from them um, and really done a lot of legwork. And I was just, I mean, it's expensive to travel. And part of it was just that I really wanted to get a book deal because that way I could at least have covered my my past expenses. So future Annalise could pay for past Annalie's <laughs> trip to Cambodia. Um, so, um, so yeah, so the process is you do a lot of research, you do a lot of outlining, you do, do a lot of planning, and then you pitch it. Um, and that was how I sold this book was basically saying... You know, I've done a, a bunch of the work. I also have a couple more cities to visit and hopefully you're interested. And uh, luckily they were. <laughs> nice. And, and uh, with your writing process generally, I mean, are you someone that, you know, we've heard that you like outlining and stuff, but do yes. you <laughs> do you revise as you go then? Or do you sort of get a first draft done and then sit down and, and work through that? What's your process? It's it's a bit of both. So I definitely do revisions as I go along. Um, and then uh, once I'm done, uh, I think this is always the case with every book. When you're done, that's when you're like, oh, this is how this book should really be structured. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's usually one very, very intensive first revision. So there's a first draft and then the first revision often 
um, it's pretty deep. Like I, I actually cut tons of stuff. I added a lot of stuff. Um, I, I changed my opinion. My, I completely changed my opinion about one thing that I thought was settled. Um, and then there'll be subsequent drafts after getting feedback from the editor. Um, and, um, and then usually like a final polish. So, and that's the case with my novels too. Like I always, I find my first drafts are just stinky. Like they're so bad. And, um, I think that's pretty common unless you're like Neil Stevenson, who apparently like writes everything like clean as a whistle the first time. But like I, I write garbage the first time and it's that's actually the biggest um, hurdle for me to get over is like when I'm writing a first draft, it feels like I'm so, I just feel so dumb when I'm doing it and or I feel so foolish, I should say, Um and I just have to be like, okay, I'm going to revise it. Like, I know that sentence is ugly and dumb. I, I hate it, but it's just, it's there now. So let's just let it steam. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's a, an important thing to say, isn't it? Because you do have to kind of push your way through these these parts and say, I'm going to fix it. I will come back to it. Because I think a lot of people can get stuck on trying to make something perfect and that can sometimes be a barrier to progressing at all it's so much is every time i get um blocked on something it's always coming down to that like it's always because i'm like but each sentence doesn't feel beautiful to Mm -hmm. me and it's like okay get over it like i said the sentence is going to be poop eventually you'll put like gilding on the poop and no one will notice like it'll be be like oh but it's so shiny you know (laughs) like don't look under the gilding (laughs) And and in the future, what would you ever want to? You know, you've done fiction, non non uh, factual stuff, but would you ever want to do screenplays or comics? Was that something you'd ever want to go into? You think? Um, I definitely think screenplays would be fun. Um, I did uh, co-write a pilot for Autonomous. Um, AMC awesome. had had uh, optioned it, um, and that's kind of floating in the Hollywood ether who knows what'll ever happen with that but um but that was really fun um i was lucky that um my writing partner partner amanda siegel is super experienced so she kind of showed me the ropes um she had worked on person of interest which was a show that i really loved um and uh and she's just such a pro so that was really fun i would i would totally do that again for another project um and i do have um you know managers in hollywood who are like trying to get stuff going um but you know nothing uh, nothing i can really talk about but um i don't think i would ever do comics just because i i think comics is one of those things kind of like video games where i am a fan of them but i just don't think i could make them and i just don't even want to try because there's already good people doing it so i i can just be a fan <laughs> yeah yeah that's allowed sometimes yeah. And, uh, yeah once in a while <laughs> yeah um what, what is, so you you're working on it sounds like you're working on two books at the moment you've got the fiction one and a non-fiction one that you're working on it's, it's true yeah it's, <laughs> how are you juggling those two projects um you know like sort of like one of those like TikToks where someone's trying to juggle and then like the balls turn into cats and like the cats turn into like demons or something. Um, I've, I've actually never seen a video like that, but that's how it feels. Um, it's, I, I try, 
I try to do what I'm trying to do is I'm I'm finishing up the novel and I'm doing research for the nonfiction book. And then I'm hoping that when I finish the first draft of the novel, I can start writing the nonfiction book. Um, I'm sure it'll be a lot messier than that and and uh, difficult, but um, but it's fun to do them in parallel, um, especially because they're actually the topics are overlapping in kind of surprising ways. So um, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> cool. Excellent. And uh, w- one thing we always have to ask people at the moment is obviously you're launching for Lost Cities at the present time, which is um, not your usual kind of book launch. I mean, how have you found, how have you found that? Um, it's been weird. Uh, I have been on book tour. I am, I am currently technically on book tour. I've done a number of um, uh, virtual events that are sponsored by bookstores. So it, it does, nice. it feels like I'm, it feels like I'm moving around, but it's like, it's not quite the, it's not the same, you know, like going physically to meet people is um, so much more, uh, well, we all know this, it's much more engaging. It feels much more like nourishing for lack of a better word, but it's still pretty fun. I, I'm not crazy about airports, so it's nice to not have to fly everywhere. Um, but I think it's, I think it's going okay. Um, it's, it's hard to tell. (laughs) They put, the other thing that's weird is that in the early days of the pandemic, um, you would go to a virtual event and you could see everyone's faces because people weren't um, using the webinar function on, on zoom yet. Um, and now everything is a fricking webinar, which means you see your face and like maybe your co like mm-hmm. your host's face or something. And then everybody else is just like a number at the yeah. bottom. And it feels really weird. <laughs> it's hard to get, to get that. Is this landing or do I need to adjust? Yeah. Totally. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's Yeah, it's super, super strange. So I would say the most um, that I keep thinking that it reminds me a lot of lecturing when I was uh, a lecturer at Berkeley. And like, I'd have a class of like 300 students. And like, at any given time, surely half of them were like, sleeping or like (laughs) distracted or whatever. And so I'm just like, okay, that's, they're just this like a bunch of people out there who are doing whatever they're doing. (laughs) And I'm just going to keep talking. (laughs) What was the last book that you read? Um, let's see. I, what was the last book that I read? Um, I'm kind of in the middle of reading a bunch of books. Um, so why don't I say the book that I last stuck my face into, (laughs) um, which was this book Kindred by Rebecca Rag Sykes, um, just sitting here on my desk. Uh, it's about, um, Neanderthals and it's a science book and it's about, um, uh, actually what was going on on earth about 50,000 years ago when uh, there were multiple types of hominin hanging around and um, exchanging ideas and having babies together and uh, what what those Neanderthals were really like. So it's pretty cool. Cool. Nice. And what about the last film that you watched? Um, last film I watched, oh, it was probably something silly. Um... Mostly I'm watching TV. So what the hell was the last film I watched? Um, 
it's so funny because like everything is on streaming now. Yeah, so it's exactly. like it all it's feels like it's coming yeah, from the same all. place. Like, was that a movie or was that television? Because <laughs> so um, it's like I watched Lupin, which is a mini series. Yeah. So it's not strictly a movie, <laughs> but it felt like that. Um, I think. Well, oh, yeah. So it was Promising Young Woman. That was what it was. So Promising Young Woman actually is uh, a movie that's kind of in the same genre as um, Future of Another Timeline. It's right. about um, a woman who's what, engaging in what we call rape revenge. Uh, rape revenge is like a whole um, kind of subcategory of cult movie. Um, and all of my friends had been talking about how Promising Young Woman, I have to see it because of Future of Another Timeline. So I did. Um, it's pretty good. Um, some problems with it, but yeah, it, was, it was okay. I think my next movie is going to be The Dig, which everyone oh, yeah. keeps asking uh-huh. me about oh, yeah, as well. Yeah, I've not seen that. Yeah, um, people are obsessed. And I, it's funny because people keep, because I've you know written this book about archaeology. And so they'll say like, did you see The Dig? And I'm like, have you seen The Detectorists? Because that's <laughs> the true story of how archaeology <laughs> nerds are. Um, and it's such a sweet show. So anyway, I keep telling people to watch that. Yeah, no, that's a great show. And it, well, we all, I was going to ask as well, the last TV show, but I think you said it was Lupin. Yeah. Uh, Lupin, actually, no, I'm finishing up season two of the Doom Patrol. Oh, so okay. I, oh. I did watch Doom Patrol last night, um, a particularly upsetting episode. So, so. I can watch the first season of that, but I don't think I ever. Oh, no. Oh, I only no, watched I watched the Titan. I saw like, the, oh, that's first, what I'm thinking of, the sort of episode in Titans, but I've not actually seen Doom Patrol itself. It's pretty good. It's funny because um, Umbrella Academy and Doom Patrol are kind of almost the same show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I watched, I, I've kind of watched them back to back. And so now I kind of have this sense of this new, like emerging, like dark X-Men type genre. Yeah, um, I think that's basically what it's about. Um, but yeah, Doom Patrol is pretty good. Cool. Awesome. And uh, the very, very last thing we do is a quick fire, either or, and there's no right or wrong answer apart from okay. potentially one. Uh, so the first one is Primer or Back to the Future? Back to the Future. Um, Star Wars or Star Trek? Oh, dude. <laughs> I, I am completely by stellar. I, I do I do both. I I will not pick. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um early bird or night owl? Uh night owl. Um TV or cinema? TV, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and the last one, audiobook or ebook? Ebook. Yes. And just to ch- <laughs> Just wow, I got the right answer, answer, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> well, just to check, if we had said real book or ebook, what would your choice have been? Oh, man. I guess, I mean, at this point, it's probably ebook just because it's easier to carry like a hundred of them with me. You know what I mean? Correct. Like, correct. Yeah. Answer. Even though you can, you I can love, come back on the show. Like, look, I have a hard copy of Kindred right here that I'm like touching and reading and it's like feels so nice on my fingers. But like, but see, for a book like heavy. that, do you not, yeah. do you not need yeah. to, for, when you're for, I find for like nonfiction, especially, especially if it's for research or whatever, you want the hard copy of it rather than an ebook because it's not as easy to flick Don't around. Don't let him swear you stick your guns. <laughs> I actually, cool. well, my ha- having done a ton of, of research, I find it nicer to have research books as ebooks because then I can carry them. Like I said, like, so if yeah, I go true. somewhere on site and I'm like, okay, I have these 50 books here about the Paleolithic and they're like in my freaking backpack, that's really. Yeah. Helpful, but a lot of academic and stuff, and 
Yeah. And you can, you can do highlighting and notes and stuff. Um, although they're very hard to export, uh, from Kindle, which is extremely annoying, but, um, but yeah, unfortunately a lot of academic books are not available as eBooks, which makes me really sad. So, um, but yeah, I still like hard books. I mean, you can see here, like I, I may have collected and that's a, a few. That's a wonderful library show. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and that's only books. one side of the room. <laughs> There's the other side of the room. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. So all you're seeing for people who are not here with their eyes is just, I have a lot of bookshelves. <laughs> <laughs> So I really enjoyed that episode, but um, obviously I was shot down a couple of times there <laughs> by Anna Lee on a, on a couple of my ideas. Uh, but you one of them, do yourself, Marco. Uh, exactly. But one of them I agree with uh, Anna Lee shooting me down, which was uh, the, the, when I was talking about if you took a man from 1900 to 1950, and then the same man from 1950 to 2000, they'd suddenly notice a big change in that latter period. Um, and actually, I think the exam, I got the example wrong because the example I'm thinking of, I think, is that if you jump from sort of 1900 or the 1890s, you know, to the middle of the 20th century, there have been so many big changes in that period that there would be more of a shock, you know, um, cars, telephones, but also things like family units and all this sort of stuff starting to change as opposed to the last 50 years, which although there have been changes, they've been more incremental in a way. But at the same time, I do see what Annalie was saying, that you can explain the concepts of these changes to someone from 1800, but just say Twitter is just a quicker version of a letter and things like that. But, yeah. you know, I, I think I think someone from 1800 would probably be quite shocked if they landed, <laughs> landed in 2021. <laughs> Well, Marco, we'll leave it to the listeners to decide if they accept the. I know I've just dug, probably dug myself a deeper hole there. <laughs> but, anyway. but no, it was it was a lot of fun and uh, very interesting. And they've written a whole host of interesting stuff in there. You know, you look through the catalogue that, that they've done, and it's short stories, nonfiction, fiction, um, articles. It's a really impressive, you know, body of work, and some really interesting um, comments on how to break into the industry, how to write for blogs and how to get yourself out there, make a bit of a name for yourself. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I read a future of another timeline, which I, which I enjoyed. Um, but also equally a lot of Annalie's nonfiction stuff is, is really worth reading. And I will be picking up a copy of Four Lost Cities as well. And of course, as we said at the start, next week's guest is also connected to io9. It is Charlie Jean Anders, who, uh, along with Anne Lee, as we had learned in that episode, helped launch io9 and helped to be one of the first writers on that on that uh, website. Yeah, and Charlie's uh, written a number of great novels, including All the Birds in the Sky, which was her big breakthrough novel, uh, which won a lot of awards and is a really great sort of grounded sci-fi fantasy novel with a uh, humorous age and uh, highly recommend picking that up but we talk about that more next week along with her latest book Victories Greater Than Death which is the first book in a new young adult trilogy that she's written Yeah it's it's a really fun chat we have with her and although there is some similar ground I suppose between her and Annalie Newitz in terms of IO9 background it's interesting just seeing the different routes that both of them have had into the writing industry and how they've, although there's a connection and a kind of jumping off point from there um it's they've both gone in very different um spaces and it's it's a really interesting chat yeah and it's 
it's a uh, you know as ever with all our guests as we find you know the roots into into the industry whatever part of writing you want to get into it, it doesn't follow the the accepted guidance a lot of the accepted <laughs> wisdom a lot of the time um yeah. but uh, yeah really worth tuning in for that one and before we go as always i'll just ask that if you enjoyed the podcast please do give us a rating on apple podcasts or whatever a uh, podcast app you listen to and a review as long as it's good would be even better <laughs> and of course if anybody wants to get in touch they can always send us an email to the podcast at rightgear.co.uk or you can send us a tweet to the twitter machine which is at right underscore gear we're always very happy to hear from our fans or anyone <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I, I just email marco <laughs> <laughs> does this email still work <laughs> <laughs> it's important to test it i test it every day just to make sure it's not it's not something broken exactly uh, well uh, anyway we'll we'll uh, leave you now and hope you have a great uh, easter weekend uh, lots of people have a few days off and i think it's going to snow next week in scotland which is just no superb exactly. yes fantastic <laughs> happy april <laughs> <laughs> see you later Thank you.